0: topic for tonight is the life of Moses Montefiore, or Moses Montefiore, depending on how you you want to pronounce his last name. But Montefiore is the correct pronunciation. Um, Sir Moses Montefiore was born in Livorno in 1784 to a family of British Jews. Now, why is a British Jew born in Italy? The answer is that many of the Italian Jews of the 18th century were not indigenous Italian Jews dating back to Roman times, but rather were Sephardic Jews who had escaped Spain and Portugal in the 1490s and made their home on the Italian peninsula, Livorno being a especially popular place because, unlike the papal states, which were religiously backward, as we'll see soon enough in the Mortara Affair, uh, Livorno was politically progressive and Jews had basically full rights. It was one of the better places for a Jew to live and the, and the Sephardic Jews were always looking for a safe haven where they wouldn't have to live as a, a, you know, a crypto-Jews and open Christians. Livorno was such a place. Well, the, the Montefiore family moved from Livorno to England in the 1740s but then Moses' father uh, Joseph Elias Montefiore moved back temporarily on business. They were merchants in the hat business, uh, and Moses was born while the family was temporarily in Italy. But when he was less than a year old, they moved back to to England. Hi, his mother's uh, side of the family was uh, Ashkenazic Jewish. was uh, a, no, not was Sephardic a Sephardic Italian. was the Mokata family. which had been in England for a fairly long time and was a prestigious family. So it's uh, Italian Sephardic and English Sephardic. I I mentioned Ashkenazic, it's going to be his wife's family, the Baron Cohen family. So they're very wealthy. But when I say very wealthy, let me uh, issue a little bit of a caveat. Not to the extreme extent that we're going to see in Moses' lifetime, where he's the super oligarch wealthy. They just are comfortable, (laughs) comfortable. Moses Montefiore's parents die while he's fairly young, and he has to go into the family business, or actually just to earn a living, to keep things afloat. So he leaves school at a fairly early age, despite the fact that he was a decent student and would have wanted to continue in his studies he had to go out to work. He worked in counting houses, which was basically accounting firms, uh, and he worked as a tea merchant. He was good. It looked like he was being groomed to be in the mercantile world that his parents and grandparents had been in. But as it turned out, no. He wasn't mer- mercantilism wasn't for him. He liked trading stocks, and so he joined the London Stock Exchange uh, at a fairly young age, around the age of twenty. And he was a broker at first. One of the few Jewish brokers allowed to work on the exchange. Well, it was permitted. There were limitations, but a Jew could could enter the, the, the London Stock Exchange. And unfortunately for him, he lost his early clients when he was 22 years old in 1806 because a friend of his, Daniel Elkins, uh, perpetrated a Ponzi scheme and a fraud. And so all of his money was lost and he had to recoup his assets over the next few years. He would go into business with his brother Abraham, but relations with Abraham were a little bit uh, tense. The Montefiore brothers were partners, but Abraham married a non-Jewish woman for his first marriage. And that was a big no-no and Moses was a, was a fairly traditional Jew. Later, he would divorce that wife, and then his second marriage would be to the uh, sister of Nathan Mayer Rothschild. So, that's a better marriage. For his cousins? First cousins? Uh, not cousins. No, 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 not cousins. But Nathan Mayer Rothschild, who runs the family operations of the Rothschild family in England is actually the brother-in-law of Moses Montefiore in two different ways. One, in that his own brother married Nathan's sister, but the other way was that his wife, her sister, was married to Nathan Mayer. So on two ends, he was a brother-in-law of a Rothschild. Who is his wife? Judith Barrett Cohen. Her family was a wealthy Ashkenazic Jewish family in England... And the, the Ketubah had a large, large uh, dowry in, attached to it. Very large dowry. I think ten thousand pounds, which was in those years a lot of money. And you said he was fairly traditional. What does that mean? Was he conservative or it, So uh, when we when we get to eighteen twenty seven, I'll compare his his observances b- pr- prior to that and afterwards. He has a religious transformation of sorts in eighteen twenty seven. What was the, what was his Jewish education as a youth? Uh, limited, he could read Hebrew, he could understand the Chumash, but that's about it. He never was a student of the Talmud or or, or any of the oral tradition. He could read the prayer book and understand the prayer book and read the Chumash. That's his abilities. That's more than a lot of people. That's true, that's true. Okay, so he makes money being a a stockbroker for his brother-in-law Rothschild. Rothschild made a lot of money using a very simple tactic. Before the invention of the telegraph, news didn't travel so easily, and if someone had a piece of financial information that the rest of the general public didn't have, you could use it to your advantage, basically insider trading. So when Rothschild knew that a favorable piece of information was going to hit the market soon, he would short the the stock. And then everyone would see that Rothschild is shorting the stock. And he would do so using people who were his known brokers, like Montefiore. Then, when everyone starts panic selling, because, after all, Rothschild is shorting it, then he would send people who were not his usual brokers to buy a ton of the stock, and then it would go up of several percent, and he'd make a nice, uh, pretty penny. So it wasn't only inside information, it was market market, uh, <laughs> 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 Mo- Moving <laughs> the market, no yeah, market yeah. manipulation. <laughs> okay, so th- that's in part how, how Montefiore made some money. Uh, and f- for the rest of his life, there would be this undercurrent of... Um, of of a jibe or a taunt that people would would, uh, send his way that, oh, you only got rich off your brother-in-law. But it's not true, because he he made money on his own in the market, buying and selling uh, shares, but then he went into several businesses after he was so-called retired. Now, he retired at the age of 36 from the stock exchange, but only from the stock exchange. Then he went on to uh, have passive involvement in various businesses where he was a member of the board of directors, like the Alliance Assurance Company, an insurance company in England, the Bank of Ireland, uh, uh, Continental uh, Imperial Gas Corporation, which still exists today in Germany. It provided gas lighting for the the first cities of uh, Western cities in Europe, uh, and also Brazilian mining corporations. So he made money all throughout his career, but it was largely passive after the 18-teens. So for much of his life, and he would live to be 100, and when you live to be 100, that means that when you retire at 36, you have a lot of retirement ahead of you, uh, he was there was a significant amount of passive income. Okay. What he did not do, for the most part, until the 1850s, and even then only to a limited extent, was lend money to the government. The Rothschilds made a lot of money by lending money to governments at war. And they they would be accused by the anti-Semites of fomenting war just for the sake of being able to profiteer off of it. Montefiore did not do that, even though uh, a person, especially a Jew, could cultivate a good relationship with the government by that means. He thought it was a little bit of a dirty business. Um, Okay. In 1827, he goes to the land of Israel. And this is what we want to hear about, the Jewish angle. Montefiore will go to the land of Israel seven times in his life. Now, he lives a hundred years, so he has time to go. And he has the money to do it. But, how long does it take and how arduous is the journey from the British Isles to Ottoman-controlled Palestine in 1827? It's a very difficult journey. Okay, he's got to go across the British, uh, uh, the English Channel, to Calais in France, down to the coast of, uh, of, uh, of the, the western coast of Italy, take a boat to Sicily, overland in Sicily to a boat to Egypt, to Alexandria, and then another boat from Alexandria to Jaffa. It took three months, or more, sometimes four months, and the more complicated factor... What was, huh? was the Orient Express? I don't know. That would take you straight from London to the Middle East. It's a, a train. So a trains train. trains don't exist until the 1840s. <laughs> um, and, and even then, there aren't that many of them in Europe. So, Could have so he, he goes by, um, with his wife, with, with Judith. And it's a tremendous experience for them. He was a traditional Jew before that, but he makes certain kabbalot, ex- pious acceptances upon himself when he sees Jerusalem for the first time. What are these acceptances? One, he'll always go to shul Shabbos at night, Friday night, Shabbos morning, and Shabbos mincha. That's pretty good. He'll go to shul Monday and Thursday morning for the reading of the Torah. And he will never turn away a pauper. Okay, now bear in mind, when people know how wealthy he is, a lot of paupers <laughs> come his way. So he will never turn away a pauper, and he will do the best of his to the best of his ability to respond to their request. And Sheni Bachamishi told me he was British already. Yeah. Sheni Vachamishi was considered a, a, a step up from the regular week. Because, I mean, my, my friendship with David Kozminski, the chassan was on Sheni uh-huh. Bachamishi and had the lane. Right, well, so, okay. Well, so they, it's a special day. It's a societal thing so yeah, why, why was he was decided wrong? to go on that first trip because growing up he had this wanderlust he wanted to travel so he, he travels to many parts of the world not just the land of Israel we're going to see most of his travels are elsewhere but if he's going to go anywhere as a, as a, as a believing Jew as a Jew who, who says in his prayers about the return to Zion he feels he has to go there and see it for himself yeah, yeah. So if he's a traditional Jew and takes on these Kabbalahs, yeah. how's he traveling all around the world with to tuna? He came oh, okay. So after the first trip to Israel, every subsequent trip that he ever took, international, he brought his shochet with him. He brought a shochet with him, yes. So it's a good question. How old was he when he made he, his first trip? I didn't he to. was 43 years old. Now, Judith, at that time, was about 42 years old. And she had no children. And one of the reasons for the trip was so that she could pray at the uh, Kever Rachel, that Rachel was a barren woman, and then God heard her cry and gave her children. So Judith was thinking, I'll go to Kever Rachel and pray, and maybe God will give me a child. Now, as it turned out, she never had children. But that trip to Keva Rachel was of lasting significance because the picture that you all know of of Keva Rachel with the dome, which you can't see anymore because of security measures by the IDF since the Intifada, Second Intifada, but that dome, which was visible for one hundred and some one hundred and thirty forty years, was paid for by the Montefiore's because of their association with Rachel's tomb, with Keva Rachel. It was a rundown nothing, and they built it up. Yeah. Uh-huh. There wasn't much that was a very beautiful or very proud. No, no. Israel is a, a, is a, a forgotten land. There, are, there aren't that many Jews there. There aren't that many people there, period. Um, but the Jews who are there are already fighting with each other. Oh. Now, the film, the yes. So why are the Jews fighting with each other and why is this important to the life of Moses Montefiore? Because he will devote much of his financial resources to charitable institutions in the Holy Land. And Eretz Yisrael is a Middle Eastern Jewish community. Okay? For the most part, Sephardic. Uh, After the expulsions from Spain and Portugal, Sephardic Jews moved to to the Ottoman Empire, including to the Holy Land, and they are the dominant element in that country. When a Jew moves into a new area they are supposed to, by tradition, adopt the customs of that locale. All right? You're supposed to adopt the Minhag HaMakom. But that didn't happen when Ashkenazim began to move to Palestine in the late 1700s, early 1800s, including the de Hagra, the students of the Vilnagon. They continued to adhere to their Ashkenazic ways and eventually would, would come to dominate because the Nusach HaVaretz Israel is significantly the Nusach HaGra, unlike in America where we have classical Ashkenaz Nusach. So, each community, and then the Hasidim began moving, and they don't like the the de hagra So, every group has their own uh, ways, and their own methods in attracting financial support. Now, the Chalukah, the distribution of charitable money, was in the hands of a few people, who were the Gabayetz Daka, the administrators, administrators of charity. But each group within the, the, the Jews of Eretz Israel wanted to have their own collection or have a greater portion of the pie. And Montefiore's go- goal throughout life was to regularize the process and have a fair distribution of the cash. A fair distribution. When he, when he went to Eretz Israel, there's one thing that he did was very important for um, statistical purposes. He liked to give tzedakah face-to-face with every individual uh, recipient. Not give a lump sum to some Gabbai uh, who then distributes it on a you know, smaller scale. He wanted face-to-face with the individual recipients. So he met thousands of people giving small change on his trips to Israel. And he would conduct a census and collect biographical data of all the recipients of his cash. So he would spend hours and hours and hours doing this, small-scale charity, but we have records, uh, well, we have some of the records, a lot of it was burnt, but we have some of of his records that were useful in determining how many Jews actually lived in Israel. And what were they doing? What what were they doing for a living? How poor were they? Their economic standing? Very important stuff. Okay. Um, That was his first trip. In the 1830s, Montefiore is back in, in England, and he's trying to rise through the ranks of the aristocracy. He serves as the sheriff of London, one of two sheriffs of London, a very important position, uh, ju- a judicial slash uh, um, corrections position in the city of London in 1837. And after that he became knighted and then he received a baronetcy. So he was a sir. He was a, a, a title of nobil- low-level t- low title of nobility. He was involved in the push for Bri- emancipation of British Jewry. Now, Jews in England do not have absolute, complete rights. It's a theocratic state, the Anglican Church, the Church of England. Okay, um, Jews are not allowed in the Parliament because in order to take uh, your seat in the House of Commons, or for that matter, the House of Lords, you have to take an oath on the untruth faith of a Christian, which a Jew cannot do. So... Montefiore in 1835 becomes the president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, which is uh, an organization that is a conglomerate of four major London synagogues, and these Jews are to get together for the purpose of advancing the political fate of British Jewry. He holds that office from 1835 to 1874. That's a long stretch. He was 90 when they finally forced him out. A generational conflict. He held on a little too long. But he liked the power, and he put it to good use. He never entered Parliament, but uh, one of the, uh, the next generation Rothschild, Lionel Rothschild, was able to enter Parliament about two decades later, uh, long after he had been elected, because it took time for the, the change in rules that a Jew could actually be seated in the Parliament. But all these things were eventually achieved. Okay. In 1838, Montefiore goes back to Israel. Goes back because there was a major earthquake in 1837 and Tiberius was almost destroyed uh, and Tzfat was almost destroyed. Um, so, he, he wants to give tzedakah to uh, alleviate the crisis. He raises some money, he gives some tzedakah, he does his mitzvah, he moves on. Goes back to England. 1840, we have another crisis. The Damascus blood libel. Father Tommaso is uh, dead in Damascus and the Catholics accused the Jews of killing him for the sake of uh, baking uh, the matzo with blood. Now, whether or not people believed that the Jews actually killed Father Tommaso, the French, being being Catholics, were supportive of the crowd that instigated the riots against Jews and in favor of the sultan of the Ottoman Empire detaining or arresting and then detaining and then charging and convicting Jews for this crime and possibly even executing them. So there's a big tumult. The Jews the world over are aghast that how could uh, in 1840, you know, this isn't the year 1140, this isn't the year 1540, this is 1840, modern times. How can you have a blood libel? So Montefiore goes on a mission to try to have those Jews who were arrested for the death of Father Tommaso to be released from prison. Was he, asked or he, just volunteered? he wants to go. But he's not the only one who's going. His fellow uh, traveler was Adolf Cremieux. Adolf Cremieux was the leading French Jew at the time. And there's a little bit of a problem. Because... If you're a Western Jew who's not especially religious and does not have nationalist uh, Jewish feeling, what makes you a Jew? Well, by birth, but you're a Jew of the Mosaic faith. So therefore, you have a a desire to help your brethren the world over if they're being charged falsely of some horrific crime. So that's why Kremiou wants to help the, the Jews of Damascus. But your kinship is primarily with your country of citizenship. So for him it's France, and for Moses Montefiore it's England. And so although the two are Jews who are humanitarians doing good, doing good work, they are sometimes working across purposes. The you, the Frenchman, Montefiore the Brit. And that clash made their, their joint effort a, a bit of a rocky relationship. They didn't always get along. Plus, after they were successful in having the people released from jail, each one wanted the cover of saying, "I I did this great work. It was my doing that uh, saved the day." That's going to be a problem going forward, where there's a crisis for international jury and different groups within, you know, humanitarian jury are fighting for the glory of saying, "We we we did it." They use influence or they just bought them out. Okay, I'm glad you asked that question. Montefiore's policy was never to bribe dictators to secure the political interests of Jews. But rather, you secure the political interests of Jews using one, number one, British colonial humanitarianism. In other words, that the Western world, represented by Britain, is going to impose better values on the barbarians of the East. So, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, a decorously dressed British nobleman comes to the Sultan and says, behave like a mensch, don't be a vildachaya. That's point number one. Point number two is, he's a wealthy man. Even if he doesn't give a bribe, the very fact that he's a very wealthy man... Uh, has, has an aura about him which is impressive and number three um, there, he, he tries to impress upon all the, the, uh, his interlocutors that it's in their interest to emancipate their Jews or to treat their Jews in a better way in a less horrific way because their own countries will prosper if they take a, 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 a less intolerant approach and we'll see he uses that method not only in Damascus in 1840, but again and again and again throughout his career. Now, he doesn't actually go to Damascus. He goes to Constantinople, or Istanbul, whatever you want to call it, um, and he sees the sultan. He doesn't go on the ground in Damascus. It was too dangerous there. And some were critical of Montefiore. How come he didn't actually go to the, to the scene of the crime? But that's what he did. And he he was basically successful. He was able to extract from the Sultan uh, a document that said that Jews will not be falsely accused of crimes going forward. Now, how valuable is such a document? Well, maybe it's worth nothing, maybe it's worth something, but he thought it was worth something. Better than nothing. Better than nothing. nothing. The one thing he didn't secure was Father Tommaso's grave had um, an inscription on it, on the tombstone, that said killed in a grisly fashion by evil Jews and for the next decade Montefiore tried through diplomatic pressure to have that tombstone removed but unsuccessfully I don't know if it's still there I don't know if if anything of it is still there but in his lifetime it was never removed okay we fast forward to 1846 Montefiore's next major trip is to Russia to meet the Tsar Although he doesn't actually get to meet the Tsar, he meets the Tsar's handlers, his uh, chief of staff and high-ranking ministers. Why is he going to Russia? Well, what's it like for Jews in Russia in 1846? Not too, Not too good. So the Pale of Settlement was the, uh, the limited area within Western Russia that Jews were allowed to live And in Russia proper, Jews were forbidden, except if they achieved certain economic or educational standing, in which case they were allowed to go to Moscow or St. Petersburg, and there were small communities there. But basically, the bulk of Jews were in the pale. And then, Nicholas I, who was the worst of all the czars, from a Jewish point of view, he expelled or issued an edict expelling all Jews from 50 50 miles from the border of the Russian frontier because of smuggling, black market operations, all the crimes that you could accuse Jews of, the Jewish peddlers, so they were accused, you have to move away from the border, move inland, okay? It actually was never carried out, or not carried out to any great extent, but the threat alone was a disaster because hundreds of thousands of Jews are now about to be uprooted. Moreover, life under Nicholas I had been bad for years. The Cantonist system of... of, uh, Drafting Jewish young boys into the army and stripping them of their Jewishness and basically uh, converting them forcibly to the Russian Orthodox Church was a disaster, and, and hardly uh, very few Jews were, were were drafted, did their 25 years of service, and made it out alive and still Jewish. So many grievances that the Jews have against the regime of Nicholas I. Montefiore goes to to Saint Petersburg and he tries his best to change the uh, the political situation. Is he at all successful? No. I don't think so. Because things don't improve for the Jews politically. Uh, I mean, you could argue that not until the end of, uh, uh, of the Tsarist regime, until the uh, the onset of the Soviet Union. But even, even lesser matters, uh, improvements don't really happen until the regime of Alexander II. Um, so... It's it's a failure. But, that doesn't mean he shouldn't have gone. Because, in fact, it was worthwhile just for him to meet the Jews of Eastern Europe. Here you have a, a Sephardic, British, wealthy man, Tsar Moshe Montefiore, the, the, the master, the Tsar. And he goes to Vilna. And he goes to Warsaw. He goes to the major Jewish communities of Poland and Lithuania. And here they meet their benefactor. It's, a, it's a, a tremendous experience for these people. Number one, he gives a lot of charity. So just from the standpoint of alleviating poverty, that's a good thing. But the other is you give hope for struggling Jews in Eastern Europe that yes, Jews can succeed in the Olam Haze, in this world. Look, your prime example. He, he, went to shuls. he went to shul's, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. He went to the synagogue. And, and th- these were major occasions. Thousands of Jews came to see him. It was uh, a celebrity sighting times ten. One thing I should mention, I, I said he went to Jerusalem, and then he went to, to Vilna. So Montefiori had a, a favorite mitzvah of his. He loved writing the, the first and last letter of Sifrei Torah. But in England, you don't have too many Sofrim who have been writing Sifrei Torah. So he would commission the Sophrim in, in Jerusalem and in Vilna, to write this, the, 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 uh, the scrolls and he would put in the first letter and the last letter. <laughs> and then he would distribute those Sifrei Torah all around Europe. So many of... Uh, I mean, that must have been a lot of money for this. So the cipher who normally would starve. Right, right. So he was, he was giving Parnassa, giving livelihood to, to people who really needed it. Okay. In, um, in the 1850s, he goes to Israel twice. He goes in 1855 Because um, Judah Toro, the American Jewish uh, wealthy man, let's put it that way, from New Orleans, died and left a bequest of 60,000 British pounds, which is a fair amount of money. And he gave it over to Montefiore to uh, dispose of in the way he saw fit. So one idea is build a hospital. A hospital in Jerusalem. Why a hospital? Well, health conditions were never good, and you could always use a hospital. But moreover, the existing medical facilities in Jerusalem are run by Christians, and when you, if a Jew wants to have uh, medical services uh, given to them, what do they have to do? They have to be exposed—not necessarily convert, but exposed to missionizing activities—and you don't want that. <laughs> Uh, Jew- in Florida. Okay. Yeah. I mean, to- <laughs> in hospitals that are run by de- 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 denominationally run hospitals, you get a little bit of flavor of the religion uh, when you're a patient there. So he doesn't want that. He wants a Jewish hospital. So yeah. That sounds almost like the Middle Ages where Jews in synagogues had to listen to, to a priest, uh, to priest yeah, sure, yeah. come into the shul and give Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so we need a Jew- Jewish hospital. But that's going to cost real money. And the Torah bequest might not be large enough. And moreover... The, the place for the building of a hospital and the purchase of land, these things were um, difficult to accomplish because the Ottomans interfered. They wouldn't allow a hospital to be constructed anywhere near the city. They, they gave some sort of health regulation. It was nonsense. They were just being obstructionist for no good reason. Ultimately, what, what ends up happening with the Judah Torah bequest is the Amin Moshe section of Jerusalem, Mishkanot Ananim. So the windmill was built so that poor Jews should have uh, grain. Uh, of course, the windmill hardly ever worked. It, it, it stopped working almost as soon as it was built. And next to it were the Juditoral almshouses, basically a place for poor people to live. The question, however, was whether or not anyone would want to live there because it's outside of the walls of the old city and it was dangerous to live without the com- the, the, the security of the thick walls. So... At first, Montefiore had to pay people to live in the juditorial almshouses because it wasn't, it wasn't considered safe. And so, in his uh, trip to Jerusalem in 1865, his second to last tr- 1866, his second to last trip, he was still funding people to live outside the city walls. But, by his final trip in 1875, uh, already beyond the city walls, there were several neighborhoods, including Meir um and pockets here and there. So he, he was happy to know that his efforts at expanding Jerusalem, which was getting overcrowded and unsanitary, was succeeding. That his efforts to broaden the, the geographic scope of the city was, it was, was working. Okay. Um, it, yeah, you had a question? It's hospitals like Shari Zedek, uh-huh. which was, I think, there was another hospital, were able to erect and build themselves up. Yes, Uh, so Sedek was outside of Jerusalem when it was first built. Today it's in the municipal borders, but but when it was founded, it was was to the west and to the south of the... Okay, so they... but you're talking about the ability to buy land from the They They relaxed the rules at various times when it served their purposes, but they were always semi-obstructionist as opposed to when they were defeated and the British were in control, then in the first decade of, of, of British rule, land purchases were a lot easier. Of course, then after the 1930 white paper, it got much more difficult. Okay, so Montefiore goes to Italy in 1859. Why? We get to the Edgar Mortara case. The life of Moses Montefiore is basically the life of, of Jewry in the 19th century. Whenever anything, any crisis happens, good old Moses is there to save the day. Edgar Mortara was baptized as a child by his nanny when he was deathly ill and she thought that baptizing him would save his soul maybe save his life in in this worldly sense and then she revealed that information to the local priest who then had the papal authorities kidnap the boy well not even kidnap the, the the law was the the, the the papal state the papal states the, the church is in control. They grabbed the kid and they refused to give him up. The parents desperately wanted the kid back. In the, the summer of 1858, they made multiple attempts to to reconnect with their child, and there was a disagreement as to what happened. The Jewish version of the story is that the kid wanted desperately to go back to his parents and remain as a Jew. The Christian version, the Catholic version of the story was no, no. He had been taught the catechism and was now a devout Catholic at the age of seven. Um, in fact, he went on to become a very devout Catholic and became a priest, Okay, and, and died in Belgium in, in uh, 1940 at the age of 88. One step ahead of the Nazis. One step ahead of the Nazis, it would have killed him. So, he had a long life as, as, a, as a Gentile, but at least in that very beginning, he was a little kid, and the, and the Jewish community was, was, was adamant that this is, you cannot behave this way. How can you just steal a kid from their family? So Montefiore goes to Italy in 1859 in April. Now, what's the problem with going to, to uh, Rome in April? Eastern. Eastern. It's like trying to get an appointment with, with a rabbi two days before Yom Kippur. He ain't getting an appointment. So he couldn't get to see the Pope. The Pope was too busy. Pius IX. Instead, Montefiore had to uh, meet with the, the, the Vatican Secretary of State, the high-ranking cardinals, who made fun of him as I mentioned earlier that people used to say oh you're just going to bribe us with Rothschild's money which was a nice shtuch at Montefiore that you, number one you're going to bribe us and number two it isn't even your money it's somebody else's money it's your brother-in-law's money but, but he didn't do that although he had a nice retort to the fellow he said oh no I gave all my money to, to pay off the, the, the guy at the coat check room so he tried his best but to no avail and this is an example where even a wealthy and prestigious uh, British Jew at the highest levels of society cannot accomplish everything. Sometimes dark forces are going to overpower everything else. And so Mortara remained a Christian. Okay, in 1864, Montefiore went to Morocco because there was a crisis in Morocco. In 1867 he went to Romania because there was a crisis at Pogrom in Romania. Again and again, when there is a crisis, Jews need help. He's there to offer comfort to those who are suffering and to try to use his good offices with the political power brokers to change the situation for the betterment of the Jews. Sometimes with, with good luck and sometimes not. Okay. When he was getting on in years, um, his wife died in 1862, Judith... Montefiore died in 1862. At that time, Moses was 78 years old. Moses did not take his wife's death very well. He mourned her terribly. And to memorialize her, he built a, a replica of Keva Rachel in his backyard at Ramsgate. He lived, not in London, but he lived on the East Cliff of England at Ramsgate, and he had a big fancy estate and he built a synagogue right next to his home, the Montefiori Synagogue, and right next to the synagogue was a mausoleum for his wife and then eventually for himself, looking just like the, the, the Dome of Kevar Rachel. Now, Judith never had children, but that doesn't mean Moses didn't have children. So as devoted as he was to her, there were all sorts of rumors throughout his life that he had sired illegitimate children, including... Some non-Jewish ones. Uh, a, cer- a certain famous British journalist was born in 1847, died in 1922. On his deathbed, admitted, that "Yeah, my father was Moses Montefiore." And there were others as well. So, uh, it's unclear if he did or he didn't. Is there already proof for you? Um, certain people looked like him who were not of the family. But he loved Judith. He loved Judith. Yeah. Okay, so... He now, was, he was Sephardic. Don't. There was no harem to Rabbeinu Geshem. There was no harem of Rabbeinu because he was Sephardic. Now we know oh. what he did on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Okay. So, to memorialize Judith, he established the Judith College. What was Judith College? It was a yeshiva on the property of the, of the, the family estate... There was not a, a traditional yeshiva in the sense of uh, <laughs> a, a, a teacher and students, but rather just rabbis from, from Europe who were studying Talmud all day would, would learn in his so-called college. And he would... Uh, uh, Torah learning. Okay, a kolol. Kol, like a kolol, yeah. It, it, it went out of business in the 1890s, shortly after his death. But it was, it was important in its day uh, in supporting Talmud Torah in England. Okay. His last trip to Israel in 1875 happened when he was 91 years old. That's not an easy trip to make at 91. But bear in mind that technology had improved dramatically between 1827 and 1875. So instead of having to go uh, in a sedan chair over land to a boat that was a sailboat, he was going on a steamship and then railroads. So he was able to make the trip in eight days as opposed to four months. Why did he go? He wanted to see what was happening in Eretz Yisrael. How did it change in the 50 years since his first visit? And it had changed dramatically. We're not yet dealing with the new Yishuv of political Zionism, but even the last stages of the old Yishuv have the, uh, the first stirrings of a, a, a national rebirth. Moses Montefiore believed very much in the productivization of the Jews of Eretz Yisrael, whether they liked it or not. Now, plenty of Jews in the pre-modern period went to the land of Israel to learn Torah and to die. That's why you go to Israel. You go to, to learn Torah and to die and be buried. But, there's nothing productive about that in the, this worldly sense. There's, you know, spiritual productivity of Talmud Torah and being buried in the soil of Eretz Yisrael. It's nice for your neshama. But, what about earning a living? But uh, uh, building up an economy. So he did various things over the years to try to uh, make these people economically productive, by having uh, cotton cotton gin, by having uh, orange groves, um, winery it was in a later st- yeah, in the 1870s, it was a winery, um, a few different light industrial projects that he wanted to get off the ground. And he was happy to see that by the 1870s this was the case. Not everyone was living off of charity. In fact, most really weren't. Most were much more industrious than the um, their reputation uh, gave them credit for. I mean, typically we, we think of the old yeshuv as just a bunch of loafers who did nothing and lived off of other people's money. But it wasn't actually the case. Montefiore's last census and economic data that he collected showed people really were working. I mean, they weren't making a lot of money because it was a poor country, but they were working. Okay. Um, Moses Montefiore was recognized around the world for his great accomplishments, not just by... uh, fellow Jews, but by others as well, and he was a a respected figure in his home country in England, because he also did things that were not especially parochial. He gave money to local charities, regardless of denomination, to the local church, to the local hospital, and so in England, he was very well received even beyond Jewish circles. Of course, anti-Semitism would use his name and a caricature of him to depict the greedy Jew, the wealthy Jew who has a pernicious influence all over the world, but that was actually a fringe element. Most of the Gentile world did respect him for his philanthropy. Now, what happened to his money? That's what people want to know. What happened to his money after he died? So he died in, in, in 1885 at the age of 100. He left behind no legitimate heirs, so, his estate went to his, his nephew, Joseph Sebeg Montefiore. The Sebeg family, they're around today. Um, in fact, the w- recent book that came out about Jerusalem was written by a great-great-grandson of that nephew, uh, Simon Sebeg Montefiore. That's his, brother? That's his nephew's great-grandkid who wrote the book. And that, and that nephew was his, brother. nephew was his uh, brother's son. Brother's son. Um, You're very good. Very good book, yes. How much money was there? There was about 385,000 pounds, which I don't know how much that is in today's currency, but it was a lot of money. Plus there was the estate at Ramsgate, which was sold off and eventually the house was destroyed and the only thing that remains is the, is the mausoleum and today the Haredim in England uh, are fighting o- uh, over control of that mausoleum because they've, they've had a, a davening there in the yard site of both Judith and Moses every year for the last X number of years and they want to maintain their their control over it as a synagogue. Um, so one one nephew got the money. Other members of the family were very angry. When you have a rich uncle or a rich great-uncle, and you think you're going to get a piece of the action, and it turns out only one of your relatives gets all the money, that's disappointing. What about giving it, you know, pulling a Bill Gates and giving it all to charity? So he didn't do that. Interestingly, although Montefiore was known for his charitable nature, the vast bulk of his wealth was not given to charity, because he never figured out any one project that he could uh, attach himself to wholeheartedly. He's had a, he had a hand in a lot of different things helping Jewish communities in, in in distress in many different places. But there was no one institution to which he was willing to devote all of his financial resources. And so it never happened. Okay. What about his religiosity? So you, you want them to know about that. Here's where we'll, we'll spend the last few minutes. England had a traditional Jewish community going into the 1830s. There was the Spanish-Portuguese community the Bevis Marks Synagogue, of which Montefiore was a member. There was the Ashkenazic community, the Hamburg Synagogue, where the chief rabbi, Solomon Herschel, was the, was the boss. And there was no room for any reforms of the service. But in the late 1830s, there was an interest on in the part of some not so religious British Jews to mimic what was being done in Central Europe, in Germany and have moderate reform, not radical reform, but moderate reform of the synagogue service. The biggest uh, change that they wanted to make was the abolition of the second day of Yom Tov. Yom Tov She'ni Shel galuyot, Everybody's favorite. So, in 1840, after failing to uh, secure changes in the Bevis Mark Synagogue the petitioners decided to break away and form a new synagogue towards the West End. And rule number one of the original charter of the, of the Spanish-Portuguese community in London was that there shall be no breakaway synagogues. Askamá rule number one. And failure to adhere to that rule means excommunication for the parties involved. Montefiore's younger brother, Horatio was one of the people involved in this breakaway. And it goes to show you how firm Horatio was in his uh, religious scruples of reform, in the sense that he knew his brother was opposed to it, and he knew that if he did it, his brother might kick him out of the family. And Horatio wasn't the wealthy one, Moses was the wealthy one. So, here you have a younger brother alienating a more religious older brother for the sake of religious reform. It takes a degree of audacity. You said excommunicate from the Spanish, Spanish, Portuguese. Yeah. What about the other no sex the, the other divisions, the Ashkenazim? Okay, so, so uh, Solomon Herschel, the Ashkenazi chief rabbi, was cajoled, so they say, by Montefiore, together with the Rabbi Moldova, who was the Sephardic rabbi, into placing the chayrim, the excommunication, against anyone who would join this new synagogue. And Moses didn't speak to his brother for 27 years. Moses Montefiore was a very firm traditionalist. He may not have been personally the most super, super pious, but he did not like changes in the religion. He wanted British Judaism to be old-line Orthodox Judaism. How successful was this breakup? Okay, so so it was not all that successful, and in fact, after Solomon Herschel died, the successor who became the so-called chief rabbi of the United Synagogue was Nathan Marcus Adler, who was brought over from Germany. And Nathan Marcus Adler, whose son Herman Adler who succeeded him, and they held the position for the next like 60, you know, 70 years between the two of them, they were able to maintain orthodoxy as the religion of British Jewry, and that the liberal denomination was a marginal phenomenon at best within British Jewish life. Significantly because the power brokers, like Moses Montefiore in the earliest phases, opposed any changes. So those who were making the changes were seen as deviant and not to be respected, to be looked down upon. Uh, That was a a very important um, early um, attempt at, at uh, preserving tra- tradition mm-hmm. that I think was successful because even to this day, uh, the United Synagogue remains the most dominant feature in British Jewish life, and the chief, so-called chief rabbi is an Orthodox rabbi. You know, British Orthodoxy is British Judaism. Why? Because 170 years ago, the the the, the, the wealthy and powerful people insisted upon it. So. Montefiore had had an important role to play in that. Um, one, one, more, one more point. Montefiore was um, not someone who worked well with with others, with with like a committee of people. He liked the diplomacy of the individual, and that was something that you could get away with. In the early decades of his public career, he had the wealth and the uh, and the. Uh, the, the honor, the prestige, he could accomplish things. But he wanted to do it on his terms and by himself. And he tried to sidestep the, the Board of Deputies of British Jews if, it, if, if he at all could. Even though he was president of the Board of Deputies, he didn't like to have to get permission from them. He liked to just accomplish his, his humanitarian philanthropy on his own. Not everyone liked that. The Americans, Isaac Leeser, who was a, a leading American Jew at the time, often criticized Montefiore for being uh, not a showboater, but someone who's unwilling to, to, to share the spotlight and unwilling to, to collaborate with others and official representatives of other communities in doing the act of philanthropy. Some people, you know, they just, they can't they can't work with a committee. They have to work on their own. That was uh, Sar Moshe Montefiore. Okay, what is his legacy uh, years and years later? Well, Aside from the, the the windmill and the Amin Moshe quarter in uh, Jerusalem, so many many uh, Jewish communities named something upon his death, or actually upon his hundredth birthday, which was a few months before his death, in memory of Moses Moshe or last name Montefiori. Now in New York you have the hospital in the Bronx, uh, but it, it's, that was named. Gone. Uh, I don't know. I'm, sh- I'm, I'm sure much later than that. Yeah. In Australia, it's the largest senior establishment for senior citizens in the world. wow. So ma- many, many communities named something in his memory, in part because he probably gave them money over the years, but also just because he was respected as this, you know, this wonderful, this great Jew. Um, the fact that he had no children... Or no legitimate children did play a role in the trajectory of his career. it's because he didn't have um, to worry about his own his own family and building up a business empire for his family that he was able to walk away from active business so early. Once he gave up hope on having children with Judith, he kind of realized to himself. Why do I want to spend my days in the stock exchange? He was interested in it as an intellectual thing, as a, as a hobby, but he didn't want to waste his life in a vainglorious pursuit of the billions. By contrast, his brother-in-law Rothschild and the whole Rothschild family and a lot of the other uh, leading figures within British Jewish life they never were able to dedicate themselves to gemilut Sadim good works, the way he did, because why? They have four or five kids to support and want to set up in business each one of them and extend the empire in, a, in as many directions as possible. Montefiore wanted to you know, collapse that empire onto his own private estate, collect the, whatever uh, you know, re- uh, dividend checks would come in and use that money for charitable purposes. Now, he, he, he saw in Sedaka more than just the opportunity to help poor people. He saw in Sedaka the highest virtue that a human could achieve. Now, you could say, well, if he were an Ashkenazi, he would value Talmud Torah even more. And he did value Talmud Torah. He started a kolol in memory of his wife. But since he himself was not a student of Torah, to him, what was the greatest accomplishment? Gmilud Chesed. And what kind of Gmilud Chesed? So, real charity to people in desperate straits. Not the giving of money to non-profit institutions who will squander it on overhead. He liked the idea of direct giving to people who are starving. To look them in the the eye and hand them the dollar. And also, Sion was Montefiore a, a Zionist? that's the question was he, a, was he a Zionist or a proto-Zionist? everyone likes to ask that he died in 1885 the Zionist Congress was in 1897 the first pogroms in Eastern Europe were 1881 Chov, uh, Chibat Sion, the movement the Lovers of Zion movement gets on off the ground in 1882 Montefiore was a supporter of Bilu of Beit Yaakov Lechuven Elcha the earliest group that went off to Eretz Israel. he gave them money in 1884, the Chove Zion Convention, which was held, I believe, in Katowice, uh, was timed to coincide with his 100th birthday. And they were sent letters, you know, congratulations to you. Admei So So, the, the early Zionists even before the term Zionism was coined by Nathan Birnbaum in 1890, the Chibat Zion movement, they saw themselves as trying to accomplish the very same things that Moshe Montefiore was trying to do in the earlier decades. There was, there was an affinity for him, and he, in his last moments, had a love for them. But was he uh, a nationalist in the, in the political sense of the word? No. Very important. In all of his writings that we have preserved, he never makes reference to the Jews as a nation, nor does he try to uh, build up Eretz Yisrael for the sake of national Jewish sovereignty in a state form. Had he lived 50 years later, I'm sure he probably would have thought like that, but when he lived, he did not think in those terms. He thought in terms of improving the lot of those who already live in Eretz Israel, improving the, the, the lives of people who could move to Eretz Israel if the, if the land were built up a little bit. And he thought in messianic terms of a glorious future for a rehabilitated land, but not for restor- restored sovereignty. Did he think of himself as a British subject? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Which you could argue if he lived a little bit later would have been in conflict with political Zionism and how he would have reconciled the two had he lived into the 1900s I don't know but at the time that he lived being a British subject and being a proto-Zionist actually went hand in hand because he liked the idea of the British government providing protection for Jews who wanted to move to Eretz Israel, so they shouldn't have to be subject to the whims of those <coughs> barbarous Ottomans Who can't be trusted at all. And so the enlightened British would be a a, a positive influence over the country, and if they had suzerainty over the country, maybe Jews could move in significant numbers and build up their their cultural life. So Moses Montefiore, actually, in intellectual terms, is foreshadowing the British Mandate of 1917 Mm -hmm. to 1948. so he had dealings with, with, um, with Henry Churchill, who I don't know if he's related to Winston Churchill, but in, in the 1840s was, was a consul general and was a, a, a Christian protozo- British proto-Zionist. And so, yes, you could argue that the, the Montefiore the person and Montefiore the caricature served the, the philo-Semitic British uh, Gentiles who became proto-Zionists into moving in that direction. That here you have this, this glorious Jew who he favors this... Per- per- precursor. He was like uh, yeah, yeah. Some of the sentiment of feeling the Yes. this whole thing. Yes, yes, I think so. Yeah. I heard a movement in, in uh, Britain about, I think it was the Puritanist who said that, you know, that the Messiah will not come unless the, or, or all of Israel is settled. Okay, so the, so British uh, m- uh, millenarianism um, in the 1600s led uh, Menashe ben Israel to ask. Oliver Cromwell, for admission to England on the grounds that there can be no spot on earth where Jews are excluded if you want to have the second coming of Messianic times, because we're supposed to be exiled to Arba Kanfota Aretz, the four corners of the earth. And since Jews had been expelled for, you know, in 1290 uh, from England, therefore they got to go back. And so, let, let us back in. The, the response actually wasn't really all that positive, but Jews went in any way surreptitiously, and their, their status was eventually regularized. So, that was the argument in favor of Jews going to England. Once there, then you could say by the 1800s let's further the cause of the second coming by having Jews return to the Holy Land. And so yes, there are some Philo-Semites who believe that, and there are some of them who in the early part of the 20th century play a quasi-important role in the development of Zionism, like uh, Ord Wingate is the most famous one. Okay, we'll stop here. Okay.